It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 192 for May 16th, 2010, recorded May 13th, 2010. And thanks to Pogo, Friday the 13th came on a Thursday this month. On May 1st, my wife, Phyllis, and my younger daughter, Katie, participated in a local television station's Commit to Be Fit 5K Walk and Run. I took their pictures after the event, several with Phyllis and Katie, and others with Phyllis, Katie, and one of Katie's friends. What I didn't notice was that in the picture of Phyllis and Katie, Katie was standing with her legs in kind of an odd position. As recently as a few years ago, there would have been no way to remedy this. Today it's easy. In fact, some of the things we take for granted these days would have been all but impossible just a few years ago. And this year we'll be able to take even more magic for granted because Adobe has just released its Creative Suite 5, which includes new versions of Photoshop, Camera Raw, and Bridge. Before the end of the year, Adobe will also release version 3 of its amazing Lightroom application, which is now available as a public beta. So make sure you check out the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. You'll see that I started with an image of Phyllis and Katie as the base image. There's really nothing wrong with the position of Katie's legs. It's just that she had her feet crossed, and I thought the image would work better without the crossed feet. In another image, the one with Katie, Phyllis, and one of Katie's friends, she had her feet in a more normal position. The images were made just a few seconds apart. Katie hadn't moved much, and neither had I. So my goal was to select a rectangular section beginning about where the sign on her shirt ended and superimpose it on the other image. The positions were just enough different that I needed a clear area around where her legs were. So by using a layer mask, I replaced Katie's legs with grass. The new grass was cloned from another area of the image, and I placed it on a separate layer. I did that so that I wouldn't harm the original photograph. All of the editing is non-destructive. I can always get back to the original if I need it. The next step involved copying a section of the second image and placing it in yet another layer on the image I was working on. But if you take a look at the images, you'll notice that there's an extra hand. This is a common Photoshop error. In fact, you'll find lots of websites that are devoted to blunders just like that when they make their way into print, and that happens all too often. To eliminate the extra hand problem, I copied another small section of the other image and placed it on my work copy. Not bad for just a few minutes' worth of work. Now, this isn't intended as a tutorial on how to use Photoshop, so I haven't provided a lot of detail regarding the technique. Making the basic changes such as these are really easy, but the tools are not always used honestly. This, by the way, isn't yet the promised review of Photoshop. I'm still trying to figure out how to provide a comprehensive review of the behemoth that is Creative Suite 5, but eventually I'll figure it out. In fact, after several months of having no large suite applications to review, it seems that somebody opened the floodgates. Adobe's Creative Suite 5 is now shipping. Microsoft's Office 2010 suite will start shipping in June, and I've been using it for a couple of weeks now. The next version of Corel's WordPerfect Office is out. Busy, busy. Oh, Firefox 4, it's on the horizon too, and TechSmith has a new version of Snagit. 
Adobe CS5 has already amazed me a couple of times, and I expected it to do more of that this week, but I got sidetracked by a minor computer glitch. More about that in just a little bit. I also wanted to spend some time with Office 2010, but I was likewise sidelined because of the problem I'll tell you about. I haven't yet had much time to take a look at what's coming with Firefox 4, but I'm sure there will be improved support for current and planned HTML and CSS standards. As for Snagit, well, I always seem to say whenever I see a new version that there's no way TechSmith can make the next version any better. And every time they release a new version, that's exactly what they do. So stay tuned. I received an interesting question this week that was kind of a challenge. Have I convinced you, by the way, that your next computer should be a 64-bit system? The advantages of 64-bit hardware are certainly significant, but shortcomings exist, too. Some commonly used applications currently aren't available in 64-bit versions. I've talked a lot recently about 64-bit operating systems, and a question came in this week from Greg. I'm a recent subscriber, he said, and enjoy your informative column. In your most recent issue, and I think the prior, you discussed the wonders of 64-bit computing. I, too, am a fan but I continue to be frustrated by the absence of a compatible Flash player. So sometimes I have to open a 32-bit browser to view certain content. Am I missing alternatives? And if not, how much longer do you suppose I'll have to endure this inconvenience? Absolutely, yes, I agree. 64-bit systems still have some rough edges. Adobe should have a 64-bit Flash player out before the end of the year, though. This is one of the reasons I haven't yet upgraded to Firefox in the 64-bit version. My scanner isn't supported on 64-bit systems by Epson either, but I can boot to Linux and use an open-source application there to scan images. If I had to scan a lot of images, this would be an ugly problem. As it is, it's just an annoyance. And if I want to do the scanning on a Windows machine, there is a third-party driver that supposedly will work, and I'm going to be looking at that in the next few weeks, so I'll let you know about that. In the new release of Adobe's Creative Suite, the video applications require 64-bit systems, and Photoshop supports 64-bit systems, both PC and Mac. So it looks like there is light at the end of that 64-bit tunnel. I mentioned last week that I'd encountered a problem upgrading Ubuntu on the notebook computer. Even so, I decided to proceed with the process on the desktop. What's the worst that can happen, I thought? The installation might fail and I'd have to reinstall Ubuntu. (laughs) It didn't quite turn out that way. The Ubuntu upgrade did fail, and then to my surprise, I couldn't boot Windows either. The Grand Unified Bootloader, or GRUB, could see the Windows installation, but attempting to boot Windows produced a black screen and no disk activity. So using the disk partitioner, I changed the boot sector from the Linux partition, which is SDA1, to the Windows partition, SDA2. No change. I tried the Windows 7 repair function. Repeatedly. Repeatedly, it said it had corrected a system partition table error, but nothing ever really changed. Next, I tried the Windows equivalent of the old FDisk slash MBR routine. What I was trying to do was rewrite the master boot record. The new command is bootsect. So I tried bootsect, NT60, all. Nothing. Then I tried the more stringent bootsect, NT60, all slash MBR. Nothing. And finally, I brought out the big hammer. Bootsect, NT60, all force, MBR. Nothing. 
By then, I had spent something like four hours trying to revive the Windows installation, and I decided that I might as well just reinstall Windows. I did that three times, and the system still just wouldn't boot. The installation completed, but on reboot, nothing but a black screen. The Windows directory, I could see it was present, it contained all the appropriate files, but the machine just wouldn't boot. Several more hours of wasted effort. I was a bit confused at that point. The disk drive that holds Logical Drive C also holds Logical Drive E. I didn't care about saving anything from the C drive, that just has programs on it, but I did want everything on E, so after booting to the Linux CD, I copied all of the music files on E to another internal drive. That required another half hour of wasted time. I then tried using the Windows XP installer disk to partition and format the entire drive. I deleted a small partition ahead of the partition that held C, then the partition with C. Next, I created a partition from the unallocated space that those two partitions had been using. Once again, back to the Windows 7 DVD, which should now see a raw partition where C used to be. If Windows 7 formats this space, I thought, maybe it'll be able to boot from it. Well, it formatted the space, it installed Windows, but could I boot from it? No. System repair can't even see a Windows installation, and it continues to report the partition table doesn't have a valid partition. At that point, a small light illuminated above my head. I tried the recovery console. I started the recovery console's disk partitioner and listed the volumes. It listed all active and inactive volumes. And drive C wasn't active. Well, that certainly explains why it wouldn't boot. So I selected the C drive, made it active, and exited disk partition. So now the C drive is active, but the machine still won't boot. But I get a different error message. Boot manager is missing, it says. This raises the question of what set the partition to be inactive and why a Windows installer will allow Windows to be installed on a non-active partition. At least this time, the system recovery option said it had found and recovered the Windows installation. It seemed to me that was about the 300th time I had started the system. It looks like I'm finally making some progress, but attempting to start the computer still results in that boot manager is missing message. So I booted once again to the Windows DVD to see if the startup repair would now succeed, and this time the problem was shown as boot manager missing or corrupt, and the repair option told me it was successful. This time it was right. Windows 7 booted. All that was left was to restore all of the applications and configure them. That's a process that will actually take days. It's a week past when the problem happened, and I'm still not quite there. The recovery process consumed about eight and a half hours, starting at 6.30 a.m. until 3 p.m. on a day that I had plans to do a lot of other things. But there was more. Windows suddenly couldn't find its network adapter. The adapter is on the main board and not something that can be disabled in CMOS. I did check that. Using the notebook computer, I obtained the drivers and installed them. The network adapter worked for about 15 minutes and then failed with what Windows said was a hardware error. A few more attempts, followed by a BIOS upgrade that I'd been planning to do for a couple of months, finally restored the network adapter. So maybe you're wondering what caused this mess. Well, it might have been me, at least in part. 
The root cause, of course, was the Ubuntu update failure. But when I ran a manual Ubuntu installation, the installer complained that Grub wasn't present on any drive. It was late at night at that time, and I believe that I probably placed Grub on the Windows boot partition. That would explain why Windows wouldn't boot. Grub would be calling Grub, which would be calling Grub, which would, well, you get the idea. But that wouldn't explain why I had so much trouble reinstalling Windows and why the drive that Windows was going to be on was inactive. So what am I going to do with Linux? Well, I want to like Linux, and I particularly want to like Ubuntu, but for now, I'll continue to install the latest version on the notebook computer because there is no mission-critical data on that machine. This is not to badmouth Ubuntu, but I do want to remind you that a dual-boot system carries a certain amount of baggage with it. If I could survive with an Ubuntu-only machine, I would. But many of the applications I need to use on a daily basis are available only for Windows and Mac computers. So at this moment, I have only Windows 7 on the desktop. I have decided that I plan to put Ubuntu back, but in a different way. I had both operating systems on the first drive, known as C to Windows or SDA1 to Linux. That means the bootloader, Grub, which replaces the Windows bootloader, is also on drive C. In a computer with four internal hard drives, there's probably a better alternative. There's a relatively small 250-gigabyte hard drive, which is E, or drive SDC1. Currently, it's assigned as an internal backup device. So I could install Linux there and set that drive as the boot device. Grub would live on that drive with Linux, and if anything ever went wrong as it did this past weekend, I could just change the boot order so that the primary Windows drive with the Windows bootloader would answer at boot time. Stay tuned, and I'll let you know what I decide to do and whether it works. In short circuits, the FBI is starting an investigation of the Lower Marion School District. That's the suburban Philadelphia school system that apparently spied on students by surreptitiously activating cameras on laptop computers issued to students by the school district. Parents have already filed suit, but now the school system's administrators could be facing criminal prosecution. A federal judge agreed to give the FBI access to evidence in the case as the agency begins investigating possible criminal conduct. Although the school system's administrators say that the laptop cameras were activated only a few times and only when the computers had been reported stolen, evidence suggests that the district collected thousands of images of students and their families. The FBI had to request permission of U.S. District Judge Jan Du Bois to investigate because the judge had ordered the school district computers with thousands of pictures of students sealed to protect the students' privacy. U.S. Attorney Michael Levy asked the judge to allow the FBI to have access to the images. Meanwhile, the FBI and federal prosecutors are trying to determine whether the school district violated any federal laws by using the computer-based cameras to secretly take photographs. The school district has approximately 7,000 students. More than 2,000 of them had been given MacBooks with an application called LANREV installed. In February, the district deactivated the application on all of the computers. As far as I'm concerned, if stupidity was a criminal offense, the people who ordered this would now be in jail. Laptop computers are easy to steal, and they're often the targets of thieves. So installing an application such as LANREV is both reasonable and prudent as a means of recovering stolen property. 
The stupid part of the plan was failing to advise students and parents that the software had been loaded on computers. And the even stupider part was using it when computers had not been stolen. Here's just what we need, another operating system. Remember Google's Chrome operating system? Google hasn't said much about it for a while, but now reports are surfacing that Acer will show some Chrome-powered netbook computers at Computex. That's a technology show in Taipei starting June 1st. Chrome is designed for netbooks, but it could be used on other small portable devices such as tablets and iPad-like devices. Samsung has been talking about devices that run Chrome, too. Last year, Google was predicting that Chrome-powered devices would be released in the second half of 2010, so it looks like the project is more or less on target, on schedule. The Chrome OS is based on Linux and requires special hardware. The intent is to have only one application on the computer, and one application is the Chrome browser. Everything else will be a web application, and all data will be maintained on the Internet, which is to say, in the cloud. Or, as one of NPR's crackerjack tech reporters said this week, on the cloud. Which reminds me of what the Rolling Stones had to say in 1965. Hey, you, get off my cloud! If you want to learn more about the Chrome OS project, you'll find the information on the Chromium website. And there is, as you might suspect, a link to the Chromium website from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.